Good morning. Welcome to Bridgewater Conklin. Guess this must be the spit zone. Everyone sits out of it, huh? Yeah, that's for Don. Right, I know, I know. Uh, my name is Jeff. I'm so glad you're here with us today. Thank you for joining us. Uh, what a great day we have here, and uh, I'm glad you're here. Turn in your Bibles to the book of Luke, book of Luke chapter 18. Uh, Luke is the fourth, Matthew, third Bible, third book in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke. Go ahead and turn there, and we'll get there in just a few quick moments. Like Don said, we're starting a brand new series called Prayer, More Than a Conversation. By the way, that TV is out of order, so that's why I'm standing in front of it, and she actually mentioned that. That's a first world problem, and we'll talk about that in just a few moments. But we're getting a brand new series titled Prayer. <sighs> Catch my breath. More Than a Conversation. Um, so if you've been in church most of your life, what you're going to hear today probably won't be new. It won't be something that's a new revelation or, oh, I never heard that one before, or that's, that's different than the Bible that I read or whatever. No, it's, this, is, this is not going to be like that. But may, my hope and prayer is that when you leave, that something that God allowed you to hear through my voice will be something you say, I never thought of it that way. That's a new way to think of it. Uh, that's good. So let's get started. How many of you know what a cheat code is? Okay. One, a couple of people know what cheat codes, yeah, okay, young people know what cheat codes are. So I'm not, I don't know what it, I mean, I know what cheat codes are, but I don't use cheat codes. Cheat codes, I believe, are for gamers, and there's, it's a special combination of letters, numbers, and symbols off a computer keyboard that you put in to something on a game, and you get, uh, you get the biggest, baddest weapon in the game where you get ultimate lives so you can't die or you get to the end. For those of you who are old like me or older like Reed, um, uh, um, he's not in here, so I get to say that. Oh, he's is here. <laughs> Think of a password, you know, the password to get you into the special file. As I was thinking about this, my wife and I love the uh, movie um, National Treasure. Remember what the password is to get into the secret room where the Constitution's kept? Valley Forge. So anyway, yeah, the password to get in. So think of a password, a password that opens up a file. So here's my question. I wonder if there's a secret password or a cheat code for prayer, that when you use it, when you insert it, all your prayers get answered. Huh. See, the Bible tells us that prayer is one of the greatest tools at our disposal. It's fundamental. See, I think prayer is fundamental to us living the life that God has for us. And even though that prayer sometimes feels intimidating, it's really quite an easy thing to do. All you have to do, you can do it, you can do it anywhere. You can wear anything. You literally, wherever you are, whenever it is, talk face-to-face -face with the creator of the universe. You can have a conversation with a guy, with the Lord, who breathed everything into his existence. You know something? He is up there ready, waiting, and willing to listen to you. That's what prayer is. See, prayer, it's the thing that we all feel we should do more of, but it's the thing, if we were honest, we would say we tend to do the least. I wonder why that is. It's the easiest thing we can do it anywhere, under any circumstances, talk to the most powerful individual, and he's always waiting to talk to you. And yet, just about every person I talk to, every single person would say, yeah, I need to do it more. I need to do it more. You know it's easier to worry than it is to pray. 
It's easier to complain to somebody, talk to someone else about our problems than it is to pray. See, perhaps, perhaps one of the reasons why we don't pray as much as we should because we're not convinced that it really works. We're not convinced that prayer is as powerful as we're told that it is. Maybe that's because there was a time in your life or in my life where you prayed for somebody. You prayed for someone for a long time about something really important. They were very important to you, and it didn't turn out the way you wanted it. Maybe it's your grandpa or your grandma. Maybe it's an uncle. Maybe it's a cousin or a mom or a dad. A couple of years ago, we were praying for my cousin's granddaughter from Ohio. Her name is Kendall. Kendall is was three years old when she con, uh, contracted a brain tumor. We prayed for over a year for Kendall, and she went home to be with God. My mom, when she was 53, got lymphoma. We prayed for six, seven months for her. God took her home. We've been praying for eight months for a pastor. No pastor. Maybe you've prayed for a job, although there's lots of jobs out there now. Maybe you prayed for a job, or you prayed that God would give you a baby because you've been infertile, or maybe you've been praying for restoration of a relationship, a marriage relationship, or a relationship between husband and wife, or son and father and son, or aunt and uncle, whatever. You've been praying and praying and praying, and because God hasn't answered that request or hasn't answered the way you wanted him to, you're convinced that it doesn't work and you stop praying. You know, prayer is something that even people who don't believe in God do. See, in moments of crisis, people who, who haven't trusted God, like Christ followers, often will throw their hands up. They've hit rock bottom, and they throw their hands up in desperation, and they say things like, God, if you're real, I don't know if you're up there, I don't know if you can hear me, but if you do, could you, would you please maybe do? See, whether whether you're a Christ follower or you're not, people approach prayer the very same way when they get in crisis like that. Would you believe that even atheists pray? I mean, they kind of like, okay, God, I don't want people to see, but if you're up there, okay, you know, uh, can you answer me? But you know something? Sometimes Christians act like practical atheists when it comes to prayer. Sure, we say we love God, and sure, we say we're going to do something, whatever, we believe in the power, but what does our daily prayer life tell? Does it tell a different story? That we're kind of like an atheist, like, eh, I don't know if it works. So what if I told you that I've discovered a cheat code? I've discovered a password I've discovered a way, and God is now answering every single one of my prayers, every single one of them. Would you be interested in hearing that? Would you want to know that? No? Okay, let's go. Good night. Yes, okay, one person. Cool. Couple. Yes, of course we would. So here's what I want to do. I want to let you in how to get God to answer all your prayers. Okay, that's what we're going to do today. So Luke 18, you should already be there. We're going to unpack this narrative. This is a narrative, a parable that Jesus teaches and explains and talks to his disciples about when it comes to prayer. So Luke 18, verse 1, here it is on the screen. Let's follow along as I read. Then Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. So let's pause right there for just a moment. This should be an encouragement to you. Why should this be an encouragement? Who were the disciples walking and talking with? They were walking with the guy that you prayed to yesterday when your husband pulled out in front of someone and almost got hit. Okay, They they were talking to the guy that you prayed to this morning. They were talking to God. They were literally walking and talking to the individual, Jesus, who they prayed to the night before. 
and they could see their prayers being answered right in front of their eyes, and they felt like giving up on prayer. It says they should always pray and not give up. The disciples were giving up on prayer. So when we give up on prayer, when we feel the same way, we kind of feel bad. Well, the disciples did it as well. See, Jesus knew that even these guys were going to lose heart and give up if they were not encouraged. So he's giving this parable to encourage them. And that's my role today is to encourage you through this parable. Look at verses 2 and 3. He, Jesus said, in a certain town there was a judge who neither feared God nor cared what people thought. And there was a widow in that town who kept coming to him with the plea, grant me justice against my adversary. So to better understand this passage, I want to give you the background. I want to give you the context of what's going on so we understand this a little better because the disciples understood it. First of all, we're talking about a widow. So when it comes to widows, for this individual widow, this was a lady who was being oppressed by someone in her life. We don't know what she's being oppressed or who was doing the oppressing, but we know she's being oppressed because she was asking for justice. And she was defenseless. Why was she defenseless? Well, it uses the term widow. And in that term, the term means a female who has basically no male relatives, no husband, no son, no father, no brother, no uncles, nobody. She had no male relatives to help take care of her. So she, she literally, basically, was all by herself. And then there's another aspect to consider that the disciples knew about, and that's this. According to Old Testament law, Israelites were supposed to take care of these people. Israelites were supposed to take care of widows and other people. Uh, let's look at Deuteronomy chapter 24. I've got to turn around and read this off the screen. So this was the thing that she was asking for justice for. Do not deprave the foreigner or the fatherless of justice, or take the cloak of the widow as a pledge. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you from there. That is why I commanded you to do this. When you are harvesting in your fields, and you overlook a sheaf, a sheaf is a bundle of wheat, do not go back and get it. Leave it for the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow, so that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. Okay? So there's the context. A widow who was defenseless, had no male relatives. She needed someone to take care of her, and she wasn't getting food, or she was supposed to get food, wasn't being taken care of. This, um, God commanded farmers to do this. This was the welfare, the Social Security system back in those days before they had it, part of the system that they used. So not only was the judge disregarding God's command to love your neighbor as yourself, he was also disregarding an even more specific command, this one that we just read. Let's, look at, let's continue on verses 4 and 5. For some time he, the judge, refused, but finally he said to himself, even though I don't fear God or care what people think, remember that, we're going to come back to it, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will see that she gets justice so that she won't eventually come and attack me. Okay, so there, there it is laid out to you. This judge doesn't want to do anything. He doesn't care about God, doesn't love people. And he says, oh, I got to do it for a different reason. <clears throat> so here's my question. Can you imagine having this guy as a neighbor? Can you imagine? I mean, I've got a neighbor named Rick. He's an awesome, he's an awesome guy. And uh, he, we help each other out a lot. But can you imagine having this guy? No longer did he not obey the first commandment, love the Lord your God. The second commandment, love, uh, love your neighbor as yourself. He 
did whatever he wanted. This judge was kind of like the kid who gets away with anything because his parents don't discipline him. I know that's not like any of your kids, but uh, think about the kid in the grocery aisle that you see a couple aisles down screaming and hollering because he couldn't get the toy or the candy or, or whatever. Or maybe he's like the worker who doesn't give a rip what the boss thinks and does whatever he wants. You know, as I was reading this and processing through this, it reminded me of some videos that I often see on YouTube of people who go into like Walgreens or CVS and they clear out a shelf and the cop's standing there and the cop can't do anything because of all his powers taken away. They don't care. They just do what they want. That's what this judge was like. He just did, he did whatever he want. Remember the WWJD bracelets? He didn't have a WWJD bracelet. He had this on his bracelet. I-D-W-I-W. I do what I want. That's his bracelet. I don't care. I'm not going to do what Jesus told me to do. I'm going to do whatever I want. See, this guy didn't care that his behavior came across as rude and inconsiderate and arrogant and outright mean. When you read this passage, think of the judge as the older sibling picking on the younger sibling. And the older sibling always, almost always wins. Next slide says this. I got the hot word attack highlighted because... When, you th when he says, I don't want her to attack me, we think she's going to do physical harm, she's going to damage him, maim him, whatever. That word refers to a black eye. So here's, here's, a, here's how I think about it. It's like when you have your two kids in the back seat and you're going somewhere on a trip, and one says, Mom, he's breathing on me. Mom, tell him to stop looking at me. Stop it. He looked at me. That's kind of what the word attack implies. It's nothing. It's not a big deal. So saying that he did not want the woman to attack him was an exaggerated way of saying this widow was wearing me down and he didn't want to come across as weak. So he, he came up with this thought, ah, oh, she's attacking me, I got to give her justice. And only then when it fit his selfish interest did he do it. Well, <laughs> hit her back. Um, it's kind of like saying, he's saying like this, okay, okay, I give in, I'll give you justice if you don't hurt me. What a snowflake. <laughs> or as uh, one of my Punisher buddies would say, buck up, buttercup. You're going to lose your man card. Yeah, this guy was a, was a wimp. And you know something? It's interesting to me that Jesus would use this as an example to teach and tell the disciples to not lose heart and pray. A defenseless, largely helpless widow who's being bullied by an older sibling, by this jerk of an individual. Ever feel like that describes your prayer life? That you were in a situation that you did not create, that you did not cause, you have no way out of it, and it seems like no one cares. It's like we're that helpless captain, we're helpless and captain, we're begging and begging to God, God, please do this, please do this, and, and it seems like he's that bullying older sibling that just doesn't care and does whatever he wants. You know, if I were honest, I've been in that neighborhood before. Sure, I, I used to live there once in a while. There were times where I twisted and begged God. I remember some of the stories my wife and I could share about on our face and on our knees begging God to do something. And, and he seemingly didn't answer it. There are many conversations I have with people that often share the same sentiment that God comes across as this big bully who doesn't care. We know that's not true, but 
sometimes the way we pray or our lack of prayer, man, tells, tells that story. I want you to notice something. I want you to notice that Jesus doesn't tell his disciples to suck it up, nor does he tell them to keep dealing with it. And he also doesn't tell them to keep on praying to that wicked judge. See, here's what you need to understand. When he gave this parable, he doesn't teach this parable and give it to the disciples and then for us to compare God's character to the judges. No, he gives it to contrast God's character against the judge. So we have the judge and his character and what's going on completely opposite to what God's should be, what God's is. That's why he walks us through. That's why he walks the disciples through this and us as well. Look at verse 6. And the Lord said, listen to what the unjust judge says. So what did the unjust judge say? He says, I don't care about God. I don't care what people think about me. I don't give a rip what you all think to me about me. I'm just going to get this woman off my back. And that's why I'm giving her justice. That's what the unjust judge says. Verse 7. You could put the word so there instead of and. So I, I'm going to use the word so. So will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? He's saying, listen up, guys. The wicked judge eventually gave in out of his own interest. So how much more would God, a good and righteous God who loves us, who sent his son to die for us, who does everything for us, how much more would a good God answer our prayers? Would a, good, would a God like that ignore his kids? Would he fail to listen to them? The answer is obviously no way. Of course he's going to hear and listen. Of course he is. Look at this, the word I've highlighted, the phrase. Go back. Chosen ones. Chosen ones in the Old Testament refers to the children of Israel, but this is the New Testament era. This is before Christ died, but we're reading it now in the New Testament. It refers to believers, Christ followers. So what does that mean for you and I when it comes to our prayers? Well, it means this. If you're a Christ follower, it meant that God sent his son to die. God sent his son to die for everybody. If you're a Christ follower, you chose to follow Christ. You accepted that free gift. So you're a chosen one. So don't you think he's going to do anything possible to listen to chosen ones, to listen to you as well? You see, since he chose us, why would we think he doesn't care or doesn't want to listen to us? Let me, let me give you a first world way to explain it. So we talk about first world problems. Not having a TV on the screen on the platform is a first world problem. Abby told me to say that. Okay. Uh, another first world problem is my second car broke down or the air conditioner in my spare bedroom doesn't work. That's, those are first world problems. So here's a first world way to explain it. Probably just about every, every adult or, and high school kid in the room I turn off, I got a text, has one of these, okay? These are pretty common, and I suspect if you have one, that you have a list of contacts in that cell phone. Not pretty, pretty common, right? So often, I don't know about you, but I put my cell phone on silent or mute. I turn it off, turn it upside down, like when I'm on a date with my wife or doing something with the family. I don't want to be interrupted. I don't want to be bothered, or at least we should do that. I mean, I know some people don't, but at least we should. So why do we do that? Because we don't want to be bothered. How many of you in here have let a, a call go to voicemail? Okay, a few of you. All, okay, let a, why do we let a call go to voicemail? 
I think there's a couple of reasons. The name isn't in my contact list. I don't recognize the number. Um, I'm not expecting a call. Or we recognize the number, the name's in a contact list, and it's Lori Vincevitz. I don't want to talk to her. No, no. <laughs> Maybe it's because we don't want to talk to them now. Maybe because there's something more important going on. Oh, by the way, she rescued me last Sunday. Thank you. Um, but let me ask you this question. What if you're doing something important and your spouse name comes up? or your child, or your grandchild? What if that special ringer tone that you have comes up? What, do, you, do you ignore it, or do you take it? What do you do then? Exactly, you take it, because everything else takes a back seat. Let me try to explain it in a different way to make it even more urgent. Your son or daughter got their license for the first time, and they're out with friends for the first time ever, and they call you. Well, I'll, call, I'll get it later. Or your son goes away to college, or you're, here, you're waiting to hear back from your mother or father or son or daughter about a health issue that they're going through, and they they, you know, they're waiting for the test results. How about this? You're, you're new parents, and it's the first time you leave your child with a babysitter. And you're at McDonald's having supper, and the babysitter calls. And you look at it and say, yeah, i got to finish my milkshake. I'll, I'll, I'll get it later. These fries are going to get cold, and if McDonald's fries are, when they're cold, they're horrible. No, if the babysitter calls or your son or daughter's out on whatever it is, nothing else takes precedence. Suddenly, that's the most important thing in your life right then, right now, and you grab it and take it. So imagine God with his cell phone, and he has your number in there, and you call him. Do you think he's going to set it aside and finish his milkshake? No, he's leaning in. He's anticipating. He wants to hear what you have to say. Every single phone call that comes in, he knows their names. He knows what's going on. And this, I, I think he says, you know something? I know what they're going through, and they got to talk to me. Angels, just take a break. We'll come back to this later. i got to take this call. They need to be reassured because they're going through a hard time. And just like we put things aside when our loved ones call us, why would we think that God would do anything less? That's making him less than what we are. See, God is leaning in, anxious and waiting to hear from you every single time you reach out to him. There's no cheat code. There's no password. Every single time we pray, God answers all of our prayers, period. He answers them all. But he answers them differently. Check out this screen right here. Sometimes he answers them in four different categories. So we're going to work through these four different words. Go, know, slow, and grow. See, he doesn't answer them always the way we want him to or we expect him to. See, this is the cheat code. This is the password, if you will, about how, how, how we have every single prayer answered. So the first one is this. Sometimes God says yes. And that's what we all hope for and what we all want we want God to say yes. You know, often at our staff meetings on Monday or when I, I lead men's Bible studies, and I always, usually always open up the Bible study with, how have you seen God work in the last week? And it's awesome to sit there and listen to men. The first couple times we do it, no one says anything. And then they realize, oh, God did this, and they realize that God did this. On staff meetings, we, people talking about, oh, this person came to church for the first time, and they got saved, and this marriage got restored, and we're working on this. It's awesome to hear these new 
hear these men and these people on, our, on, my, on the staff to talk about things that are, that are happening, about a job promotion. Sometimes it's an unexpected yes or positive on a, on a pregnancy test. Sometimes it's, a, it's an anticipated and hoped for no on a cancer test or marriage relationships being restored. Several years ago, uh, when I was at Ross Corners Baptist Church, I took a, a group of teens and adults to Bethesda uh, Ministries. It's an it's a, uh, orphanage in South Africa. And we were tasked to build this uh, very pretty large greenhouse. It's made out of plastic, and it's very sturdy. Was, and um, don't think plastic isn't cheap, but it was good. Anyway, and at the peak of the roof, they had these frosted panels they were supposed to be glass, but they're plastic, but frosted. And they weren't much bigger than a cell phone. They were isosceles triangle, kind of like this. Four, two of these little pieces, we couldn't find them. We couldn't find them anywhere. We searched and searched. I noticed people looking and searching. And one of the guys on the trip said, you know, if Mr. Cope was here, he'd pray. Mr. Cope was the maintenance man back at the school who these kids who were there with me knew him. So we stopped and prayed. And I swear to you, I, we found those two pieces in five, within five minutes. We found them. It was amazing. But I have a different question for you. Consider this question here. If God said yes to all your prayers this week, who would be blessed? Would anyone come to Christ because of your prayers? Would there be restored relationships because you prayed for that? If God answered all your prayers with, with yes... What would your life look like? Would you be the one blessed? Would you be the one with the bills paid and without the bad back? Or would someone come to Christ? Would someone come to church? Would relationships be restored? Think about that. If God answered all your prayers with yes, what would that look like in your life and the people that you're praying for? See, sometimes, next slide, God answers no. This is our least favorite answer, and sometimes when we hear the word no, we think, well, it's not an answer. He's just saying, he's going to say yes later. But anyone who's raised a child knows that no is an answer to a request, right? I've got a whole list of them. You could probably come up on your own. Can I have that toy? No. Can I drink this two-liter bottle Mountain Dew before I go to bed? No. Can I eat this chocolate Easter money? No. Can I jump on the trampoline naked? No. Can I stay out past midnight? No. You know, when my kids were young... I never enjoyed telling them no. Well, that's not true. Um, but I sure did love blessing them with yeses. But sometimes the thing they asked for was not the best for them. Sometimes they were asking for things that would cause them great harm, danger they didn't even know existed. So why would we think that God is any different than that? He wants to protect his loved ones. He wants to protect his chosen ones. I wonder how many times a week we ask God for things that we have no idea the danger we're asking, our, asking for ourselves. And he knows will be harmful for us, or at least what's best for us. Man, I shudder to think about what my life would look like if he always answered my requests with yes. I'm so glad he says no sometimes. And frankly, I think I need a little humility in my prayer life. Maybe you do as well. I'm making requests to the Alpha and Omega, I'm asking the guy who created the universe. He knows how many hairs I have in my head. No comment. <laughs> he knows that. And I'm asking him, and I'm kind of telling him what I think's best. Is it possible he knows better for me? Is it possible he knows better for you? I think now that my grandson's living with me, I watch him crawl around the house, 
And when my kids were that little, they were crawling and running around completely unaware of the dangers in the home. You know, like electrical outlets and cords and falling off a bed or a hot wood stove. My middle child, Heidi, got on the back of a rocking chair like this and started rocking. She face planted on the base of a lamp and busted out her two front teeth, her, her, her baby teeth, so no, no permanent damage. It's up to us parents and grandparents to make sure our kids are protected from dangers they're not even aware of. And the same is true for God. We can't understand the dangers or the heartaches or the things that God is sparing us from, but we need to trust him as a good father that he is. When he says no, perhaps he's protecting us from something that we don't know about. And there's another reason, another reason why God says no, because our motives are wrong. Look at James chapter 4. When you ask, do not ask because you, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. Selfishness is a sin, and that's what James is referring to here. See, when God answers no, it may be because of a danger or maybe because we're asking for wrong motives. And God is concerned about our spiritual growth. And so sometimes I think when we ask with a sinful motive like selfishness, God knows that if he answers that request, then we'll no longer be dependent on him because that request is gone, whether it's a health, a health problem or financial problem or whatever it is. I was doing some discipling of young men who accepted Christ uh, four or five years ago. And, and they were all, and there was five of them, and uh, they started to drop off. And one of them dropped off, and I had breakfast with them. And I said to him, I said his name, I said, uh, how come you're not coming to church, not the Bible study anymore? He goes, man, Pastor Jeff, I graduated from high school. I got a good job. I got a great girlfriend. I don't need God anymore. All those struggles were taken away. He didn't need God anymore. You see, when God says no, sometimes he wants us to keep depending on him. So he keeps that hardship in our lives so that we will trust in him to take care of it. Because sometimes if he takes it away, we're going to think, hey, everything's good. Don't need God anymore. See, sometimes, next slide, God says yes. Sometimes he says no. Other times he says, yeah, not now, slow down, slow down, not now. We might not see an immediate answer to a prayer request. That doesn't mean that God's saying no. It simply means that God's timing is a little different than ours. Look at verse 8. I tell you, he will see that they get justice. They, being his chosen ones, will get justice and quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on this earth? You see, God may be saying yes, but not yet. Just wait. The question, so the question then becomes this. Will we continue to have the faith that we need to keep praying for that request, even though we're still waiting? Next, will, will faith keep us praying, even though the answer is delayed? When God delays the answer, do you have the faith to keep on praying for him, praying to him and asking for it? See, if Jesus come back, if Jesus came back tomorrow, would you could could you say that you lived and prayed in faith? It's not too late to start. You can start today. Bob Goff, an author of a book named Love Does, has a really good example of waiting. And I'm not I'm not going to read it all. I'll take a minute, a couple minutes to go through this a little bit. But Bob Goff decided he wanted to become a lawyer, and he applied to a couple of schools 
but he didn't get accepted at the one he wanted to attend. So he, he, 10 days before school started, he went there to talk to the dean of students. He walked in, knocked on the door. He came in to the dean of students, and he said, I applied for this uh, to be a, go to school here, but I did not get an acceptance letter. And the dean put his hand on his back as he ushered him out the door, and he said, there are a lot of kids that don't get in here. Thank you for coming. And he went to close the door, and Bob says he put his foot in the door, and he said this. You, the dean, you have the power to let me in. I know that all you have to do is tell me, go buy your books. And I could be a student at this law school. It's that simple. You just need to say the words. And he said the dean smiled and closed the door. Well, there was a bench outside the dean's office, and Bob decided to go sit on that bench. And there was a couple, like 10 days before school started. So he sat there the next day and, and, and the next day and the next day. And he learned the dean's routine. He knew when he was coming, when he was going, when he was going to the bathroom, lunch, golf, whatever. The first time he walked, the dean walked by, the dean goes, what are you doing here? And, the guy, and Bob says, you have the power to let me in this school. All you've got to do is say, go buy your books. Well, two days before school started, one day before school started, the day school started, he went there in anticipation of getting yes. No yes. Second day, school started nothing. Third day, he was beginning to think, oh, no, I get better start doing something different because all these kids are getting the education that I'm not. And the dean kept on walking by. He kept on walking by. And every once in a while, Bob could say, you could tell me to go buy my books. You could tell me to go buy my books. Fourth day, he said something changed. Without fanfare, the dean turned the corner from his office. And as usual, I was prepared to say, as he walked by me, just tell me to go buy my books. Something was different this time, though, because instead of avoiding me and walking away without saying anything, the dean stood there, towering over me. There was a long pause. The dean looked at me squarely in the eye, gave me a wink, and said the four words that changed my life forever. Go buy your books. Would you have that type of faith and courage to do that with God? 10, 15 days, 6, 8, 10 months, 10, 12, 15 years. He, he could have quit the first day, the second day, the third day, whatever, but he chose not to. Bob Goff willingly set aside his time frame to accept God's. 2 Peter 3, 9 says this, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you. You see, sometimes God's answers to our prayers is yes, but, but not yet. And we often interpret that as a no, when it's actually a not yet. So what if, when God answers not yet, we hear him say yes, but not yet, give it some time? How would that change you? How would that change us? How would that change your thinking and your attitude? See, I believe that it would, or at least that it should, keep us like Bob Goff, being there every single day, anticipating, waiting, listening, wondering, asking, is it today going to be the day? Is today going to be the day? And so we can learn why God is teaching us that patience. The final answer is not like that. Sometimes the answers grow, not like that. So often when God answers our prayers and our needs, it looks way different than what we had in mind. You know the old adage, I prayed for patience and he gave me patience. No, he didn't. He gave me more heartache, more problems, more hard people to deal with. Or... How about this? I asked the Lord to help me pay my bills. I was expecting money. 
but he told me to cancel my online subscriptions. He told me to sell my second car. He told me to get rid of my second car and sell my new car so I could buy a car with cash. He told me to get a smaller house. He told me to stop eating out so much. See, sometimes he answers our prayers differently than we expect. Consider how the God answered the Israelites' prayer for a Messiah when they, wanted a, when they prayed and prayed for a Messiah. They expected a king to come in, set up thrones, and overthrow the Romans, and kick them out and say, boom, there you go, the Jews are it. Instead, you know what God did? He sent them a baby, a child to be their Messiah. Mark chapter 10, verse 45. For the Son of Man did not come to be served, he didn't come as a king, but to serve, he came as a servant and give his life as a ransom for many. Instead of getting a king, they got a servant who was going to die. Way different than what they were looking, way different than what they were expecting. And many missed him because they had already determined what the answer to their, to their prayer was supposed to look like. And rather than leaving it up to the God to determine the best way to answer that question, they completely missed it. How many times have we missed God's answer to our prayers because we're looking for something different? So often, we can turn around and look back and see in, a, in our life how God has answered this request and this request and this request. Way different than what I expected. Way different than what I prayed. That's why I think keeping a prayer journal is so valuable, so important. Or having a box that has... A blessing box. You know, God answered us, gave us a roof, and God gave us a car, and God, whatever. It's so helpful because we can turn around and look back and see how God answered those prayers by the answers that he gave us that we didn't see. So how do we apply this to our lives? A sermon on prayer requires commitments about prayer, right? See, when I preach, it's not about information. A prayer, a prayer, a sermon. A sermon on prayer is not about information, but it's about should be about life transformation. How can this change my life? How can this change your life? So I got a couple of questions for you. This week, if you struggle with praying, would you commit to praying for 15 minutes a day? It's just a start. It, there's nothing magical about 15 minutes. It's just a start. And if you can't, don't think you can do 15 minutes a day. Then try this. When you get into your car, don't turn on your radio, but pray. If you're going to Wegmans or Walmart or the park, pray. Pray for five minutes, pray for three minutes, pray for 20 minutes, whatever it is. Every time you get in a car, don't turn on the radio, pray. Would you commit to establishing a time and a place every day to pray? Maybe at 6 a.m. on the back deck or 9.30 p.m. at your easy chair. My wife, she gets up before me, and every day between 5 and 5.30, she's sitting in my easy chair with her Bible, reading it and praying. That's her routine. That's her habit. Would you commit to establishing a time and place to do that in your lives? And finally, would you commit to praying to someone in your life, someone in your circle of influence who's far from God? Maybe you prayed for them in the past, but you've given up because you haven't seen God answer that prayer yet. Would you commit to that? One last thought. As I was preparing through this, this message this week and thinking through the things that have happened with this campus over the last couple of weeks and couple of months, God prompted me to ask one final question, and it has to do with this last slide. The question is this. When it comes to this campus, Bridgewater-Conklin, and it comes to the struggles that we're facing that 
we've been facing for a while, and we're looking for a new pastor. I wonder which one of these answers that God has given us for the struggles and for our new pastor. Could it be that he's trying to do something in the life of this campus? Could it be that he's trying to do something in the lives of individuals who attend this campus, or me, or anybody? Has God said yes to a campus pastor? Not yet. Has he said no? I don't think he's going to say no. Maybe he said not now. Definitely said not now, and maybe not like this. We need to grow. Is it possible that God has said not yet? Maybe because you and I and me and we, we need to learn to be more dependent upon him and less dependent upon man. Prayer is more than a conversation. It's face-to-face talk with the God who loves us. Let's pray. God, I thank you that um, you answer our prayers without a moment's hesitation. I thank you that you want to answer our prayers and your phone is never on silent. I thank you that uh, even though there are times where we don't see the answer or we don't see you working, like some of the songs we sing, we know that you were there, we know that you're answering. Sometimes you say, man, I just need you to grow. I got to keep you depending on me, so just stay in the fire a little longer. I pray for our campus as we go through these struggles, as we look for a campus pastor, God, that you would help us to be only solely dependent upon you and not on men. God, thank you for loving us. Thank you for allowing us to serve and worship you. In Christ's name, amen. We're going to sing one last song. Why don't you stand and join us?